This is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn how to serve and glorify Him. The lesson that you're about to hear comes from our 2005 Fall Focus on the Family, Built by the Lord. Jim Deason, a brother from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, helps us understand how to build the bond between parents and children. If you haven't already heard the companion lesson to this one, Building the Bond Between Husbands and Wives, make sure you get to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com and download that along with the other lessons from our fall family focus, Built by the Lord. But right now, get your Bible out, open it up, and let's learn how to build that relationship between us and our children. Today, I am 19,152 days old. You know, it's occurred to me that's a long, that's a long time. Or at least it seems so when you put it that way. You could have gone all night without amen to that. Of those, what well, seems like many days, there are seven of those days that stand out head and shoulders above all the rest. And as I think about those seven days, five of those seven days are related to my children. Three of these five were the days that each of them were born. If you want me to recount them, I could very easily tell you exactly what I was doing and when I was doing it. The birth of a child is a very special thing. There are a few things in life that really measure up to that. They're very special days. You take your wife to the doctor for the very first time, and he confirms what you suspected, and she's expecting, and that's wonderful. You're happy. You're excited. You're filled with anticipation. Uh, you can't wait sometimes uh, to learn uh, what the whether the boy's uh, whether the child's going to be a boy or girl, so that you can even start making more specific preparations. And and you enjoy telling other people and, and telling them what's going to happen. Oh, by the way, I'm fixing to have my third grandchild, and I'm excited about that. Or or we'll just found out that we're going to do that. And then you, you, you let other people share in your joy. And other people just thrill at your joy when you tell them about the news that you're going to have a baby. And then over the next several months, there's a lot of preparation that is made. And, and that's a wonderful time, too. And then one night, maybe during the middle of the night, you get woke up quite unexpectedly with a hand on your arm that feels like it's about to break it in two. And it's saying, Jim... We've got to go to the hospital, and you're asleep, and you're asking, why? And she says, we're going to have a baby. Well, I did the beautiful thing the time that David was born. When she told me that, I just got up and went in the bathroom and just coolly took a shower. We had to go an hour to the doctor, to the hospital. I put on a coat and tie at 2 o'clock in the morning, wasn't thinking a thing about it. She was saying, her! What a wonderful time it was. You get to the hospital, one of the most natural things, yet one of the most special in all the world takes place. And then a new life is born. And you're able to look into the face of your child for the very first time. What a wonderful day that is. As a father at this point, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian will determine exactly the feelings that you have over the next little while. A non-Christian father is going to be thinking about the child's earthly interest and, and his uh, other considerations, and he may lay tentative plans for what he wants his son or daughter to be like. And so there's a feeling of responsibility, and that's a good thing. 
A Christian father is going to be looking at it a little bit differently, and I think a lot differently in many ways. Well, he's going to be thinking about a lot of those same things, but more importantly, eternity is going to be in his heart. And he's going to be looking into the face of a child that he brought into this world and for whom he is responsible. And I'll tell you, the day that my children were born, I was not thinking about how I was going to educate that child. I wasn't going to be thinking about how I was going to be able to provide for it physically and the home I was going to be able to provide for it, whether or not I was going to buy him his first car or, or when I was going to buy him his first bicycle or anything like that. I was thinking about, I brought this child into this world and that's my responsibility to see that he gets to heaven. And that, I believe, is an awesome responsibility. The most serious responsibility that anyone can possibly have. Somewhere along the line, a parent asked himself the question, why do I have children? Now, you ask that question sometimes depending on the stage of your children in different ways. Sometimes you say, why did I have children? And if you haven't asked yourself that question that way, just wait. You haven't got there yet. You will. But most of the time we do really look at this in an objective way and try to consider, try to figure out why did we have children. And answering that question, I, I come up with two different things. First of all, there is the immense capacity of the heart to love and to be loved. God created every man this wonderful ability to both dispense and receive love. And there's no love to be compared among men than the love of a parent to a child and a child to a parent. Those are, that's a wonderful, wonderful love. But the second reason is found in a statement that the psalmist made in Psalm 127, beginning in verse 3. Psalm 127, beginning in verse 3. For the writer said, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies of the gates. Most of the time when we come to this passage to talk about children, we talk about how that a man is really blessed to have a quiver full of them. Whether that quiver be big or small. But he's, he, he's blessed to have a quiver full of them. And what a wonderful thing that, that it is. But... I want you to think primarily about that statement in verse 4, where he says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. David described children as arrows in the hand of a warrior. What do you mean by that? Well, when I think about that, I, you know, within the heart of every man, there's this desire to extend his influence beyond himself, and particularly into the future. Uh, this desire may be rooted in the longing that every man has for immortality, but... But perhaps more reasonably, it's simply because you want your life to count for something. You want your life to mean something. You want to believe that the world is a better place because you live. That, that you were indeed the light of the uh, world. You were the salt of the earth. And, and that you want that influence to be able to extend. And you want that influence particularly for good to continue long after you've gone. Therefore, you bear children and you train them up in the way that they should go. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7 and then they become extensions of who you are. Your central purposes, at least in an ideal world, become their central purposes. So it's with this background in mind that I want to raise this question for consideration. How do we practically accomplish this? How do you build such a bond between you and your children that they become extensions of your most noble traits? Now, let me just kind of chase a rabbit here just a moment and say this. 
One thing you will find out about raising children, and particularly those of you who are uh, raising very young children right now, you just started your family. You need to know this. That your children are going to display your traits, and sadly, many times, they will pick up on the worst of those traits. I, I look at my children sometimes, particularly as my boys have gotten into uh, adulthood, and I, I thought to myself, oh, why, oh, why did you pick up this trait of mine? Why not this other trait? Well, why didn't you pick up this trait from your mother? Well, it just doesn't work that way. It's not as well as you would, you would like for it to. And I also realized that, that I might be talking to some people who are thinking, as you're talking about building the bond between you and your children, that at this particular point in time, you're not trying really to uh, extend your influence past your life. You're just trying to get through it all. Uh, you're just trying to make it and survive. And you may be thinking, you know, how can I build such a bond between me and my child that he won't hate me when he gets to be a teenager? Well, I don't know if you'll ever accomplish that. But at, at that, we're looking at something a lot more noble and a lot more lofty this evening. How can you build such a bond between you and your children, at least from your standpoint, that you can help them to go to heaven when they die? I want to suggest to you several things, and the lesson will be yours. First of all, let's talk for just a few minutes about how that indeed it is important for a parent to give the children a dependable authority, an authority that they can depend on, that they can learn to respect. You know, children, merely by the very definition of the word, are immature. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning verse 1, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of the promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke the children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I can't tell you very much about this passage that, that probably you don't already know, but this is what I want you to see in the text. That is, that, that parents are given authority over children. And, and rather than being pals to your children, you need to be parents. And you have an authority over your children because an immaturity is there that you need to exert. You've heard a lot over the last few years, I'm sure, about the, the book Radical Restoration from Regard Smith. And you've heard me, in fact, I've talked about that book from this pulpit before. I want to make this observation. One thing that he does say in this book that is really true, and that's this. We are a youth-driven society. All that you have to do is just look at the advertisements in, in the world, and you'll see where most of the money is being spent. Most money is expended, driven so much by our young people, by our kids. Uh, most churches are, are driven by youth. You know, you want someone as a preacher or as at least the teacher of your Bible classes who can really relate well to youth because you know if you can get those youth, then you can get the parents. And, and so we really work hard. Somehow that's just a touch backwards. Because when you look at what the Bible has to say, from the very beginning of time, it was the hoary head that was respected. And I was raised in that generation where young people were seen and not heard. I was raised in that generation of time in which parents were indeed authoritarian. And we learned to respect and obey our parents out of that. So more than being pals, God wants you to be a parent, to establish consistent parameters 
of behavior and then to enforce them. The parameters ensure their proper behavior, but more than that, the consistency is going to produce respect for you and for those who are older. The second thing I want to suggest to you that you need to give your children is an infallible law by which they might live. You know, the fathers of ancient Israel were given the sacred duty to teach their children. Uh, Open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Read with me very quickly here from verse 4 through verse 9. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. This was the responsibility of the fathers of Israel. For whatever responsibility the teaching priests might have had, it was first and foremost the responsibility of the fathers of Israel to see that their children knew the law of God. He said, you teach them diligently to your children. That is, you teach them with commitment and zeal. Don't neglect this responsibility. You may neglect a lot of other responsibilities, but don't let this be one of them. He said, talk to them when you sit in your house. In other words, in private. You let the commands of God have an important place in the innermost part of your life and of theirs. You talk to them when you walk by the way. Teach them wherever you go, even when you travel. Use every occasion to show your children the application of God's law to your life. You talk to them when you lie down. You let the law of God be the very last thing your children hear as they go to bed at night. Let them fall asleep with God's Word on their mind. You talk to them when you rise up. That is, you teach the ch- your children the law of God in the morning as they go forth to meet the day. You remind them before they've had occasion in the day to sin against Him that God is watching over wherever they go and whatever they do. You remind them of that. You bind them as a sign on your hand. You let your children see the Word of God live in everything you do. You can't teach your children to be something you're not yourself. They shall be as funnels on your forehead. It's amazing to me that my children can know better than anybody else what I'm thinking. You seem to think sometimes, you know, children think that, that parents can have eyes in the back of their head and see everything that they do, you know. And that is true. But, you know, it's also true that if anybody in the world knows what you are thinking, in addition to your spouse, it's going to be your children. You know, you can live a relatively consistent life, it appears, before your brethren, but if you are hypocritical in any area, your children will know it. They will see it. You write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You make a public commitment to God. Your children should see that your commitment to God is not merely a hollow profession, but a commitment that rules your life and a confession that you're not ashamed to make before the whole world. That's the kind of law that you need to give to your children. And particularly today, fathers, you have that responsibility again. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. It's a role that you cannot advocate and a responsibility that you cannot delegate. You can't delegate it to the local preacher. You can't delegate it to the elders. You can't delegate it to your Bible class teachers. It's your responsibility to spiritually educate your children. They've got to hear the law of the Lord from you. 
So if you want to build a bond between you and your children that will last a lifetime and influence them for eternity, you've got to give them a dependable authority to respect, and you've got to give them an infallible law to live by. You also have to have to give them an unconditional love to live with. We live in an age in which many are unloving and without natural affection. This was a sin that the Apostle Paul condemned in Romans chapter 1, verse 31. Child abuse is something that's rampant in our society, and I'm just amazed that uh, I think the last figures that I saw said something like four out of uh, every ten young girls were abused by the time that they reached uh, the age of 20. And that's just a shame. Parents are told they must love their children. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, that older women will teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. And it seems that, that there ought to be just that natural affection that would make that very, uh, uh, you know, just kind of drive a nail in that one. But, uh, but older women are to teach their children, their, their younger women, to, to love their children. Maybe uh, to teach them how to love them, to show that love to their children. And love and its demonstrations have to be a vital part of our children's lives. You know, we often talk about 1 Corinthians 13. We mentioned it this morning in our Bible class back in the back room that our brother taught us, uh, Brother Long taught us this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffer. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And you know, usually when we talk about this, we set it in its proper context, and we say that we're talking about love as one brother to another in a congregational setting. But have you ever thought about the attributes of love as they apply of a father to children? The same thing. You know, I think sometimes we act as, as though uh, there's a very limited application of these attributes of love and that they do not apply in the home, but quite to the contrary. If they're going to apply anywhere, they ought to apply between my children and I. Our children need a consistent love. And in fact, I want to say that children need not only to see the fact that you love them, but children also, your children deserve to see how that you as parents love one another. They really need to see that. I've seen some parents that were a little bit hesitant to show the kind of affection that they need to toward their, toward their children and, and show any kind of affection toward their wife in front of their children. That's not a good thing. Because the children learn the way they love from your action. And they need to see it. They need also a faithful example to follow. You know, I lament the loss of role models in our society. I grew up in a time when the silver screen had men like the Lone Ranger and Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and some of the youngest kids here, maybe even some of you teenagers, may not know very much about them. But I really liked them. I couldn't go back to Lash LaRue, or at least Jimmy could. I don't know if I... I but, but some of those... And, and, and remember some of those, those guys. And... They always wore white hats. They were always on the side of right. And the good guys always won. And the difference between right and wrong always clear. But you know, today that's not the case. Today the names of the role models are Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Van Damme and Seagal and, and, and some of these other, other men like this and sometimes women. And might makes right is the philosophy they preach. And, and violence is their method of choice. 
And, and maybe one of the worst things about it, if that's not bad enough, one of the worst things about it is that the line between right and wrong is always more blurry. It's not nearly so clear, and right doesn't always win. And with that in mind, you know what happens so many times? Our children grow up with the wrong message. Our children go to the sports world for role models. And that's a bad place to go. It's kind of like going to a slot bucket for biscuit. You just can't find one that's digestible. It just doesn't work. And, and so our children need to see in parents the kind of example that will lead them to eternity. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and, and verse 12, he said, Timothy, I want you to be an example of the believers. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. I have no idea whether or not Timothy ever got to the point to where he had a wife and children. The Bible just simply doesn't tell us. But it is assumed by most people that by the time Timothy, uh, Paul wrote this to Timothy, that he was at least somewhere around 30 years of age. And he could quite well have had children at this point, although nothing is said about it. But I can full well imagine the Apostle Paul, if he felt it necessary, to say to Timothy later on in his life, did he have the opportunity? Timothy, you need to be an example of the believers. And you need to be an example of the believers in your home. In the things that you say and what you do, an example in love, faith, and, and, and purity. Your children need to see this. Your children need to see your moral purity, your faithful worship. They need to see your personal righteousness. They need to know that you are a righteous man. They need to see you active in the service of the Lord. They need to see that. You know, so many times, over the years, I have sat with parents who've lost their children. And you can see them wringing their hands, tears coming down their eyes, Maybe sometimes the hands on their forehead as their children have gotten in trouble and they're asking, where, oh, where did I go wrong? I, I must tell you, there have been times when that has happened and I just simply had to say, I don't know. Because I knew the parents real well. And they seemed like wonderful parents to me. And it seemed to me that their children were what they were in spite of what their parents did. That's fully possible. But I also know that there have been times when people have said, where did I go wrong? That I think I could have spent quite a while telling them where they went wrong. Quite a while. Children need to see good examples. Children need to have a consistent discipline to correct them. You know, I mentioned just a few months ago that, that uh, children, the very that the word child was synonymous with immaturity, and it is. As parents, we're commanded, according to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 that we read a few moments ago, to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of, of the Lord. That word discipline comes from the Greek word paideia, which means the whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals and employs for this purpose both commands and admonitions, as well as reproof and punishment, the lexicographer said about that word. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says, It is for discipline, verse 7, that you endure. 
God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His blessings. Now understand, share His holiness rather, understand that this passage is talking about God and His discipline. But it's also talking about how that our parents discipline us and how we respond to them in discipline. This discipline, that this word entails, involves two things. It involves instruction in the right ways, and it also involves uh, corrective or even punitive discipline. Corrective discipline works with a child. God says it does, despite what a lot of modern psychologists say. Well, this is really a touchy subject because I, I fear that in talking about it, I'm probably going to make somebody a little bit irritated at me, but I'm going to say it anyway and beg your indulgence, okay? We live in a day and time in which people say you shouldn't spank your children. That is the main, that's the general consensus today. And I must tell you that it is a sad, sad consensus because it is not correct, biblically speaking. It seems like that God, in many cases, not just when it comes to discipline children, but in this particular looked down through the centuries and saw 21st century man and thought, well, now here is the way they're going to be thinking when they get down there. And so in order to be able to answer the way that they're thinking, I'm going to write some things that's going to address those issues. For example, there are a lot of people today who say, well, you know, I just love my children too much to spank them. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him uh, diligently. And, and so here are people who say, Well, you know, I just love my child too much to spank them. Well, that's not true. If you withhold a spanking from a child when they need it, now understand, I am not talking about abuse. You withhold a spanking when they need it, and, and that's not love. You're hating your child by not correcting them. I can just see the Lord saying, well, there's going to be people down in the 21st century who's going to say, just let the child alone. Children's going to be children. But I hear Solomon saying, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. You see, the, the thing is, is that you don't want a child to stay a child. And so what you have to do in order to see that they mature and mature as they should, you have to discipline them. Someone says, I don't want to hurt or inhibit my child. The Lord don't want you to abuse your child. But Proverbs chapter 23, beginning verse 13 says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. That's what the Lord said. I've heard some parents who would say to their children, this is going to hurt me worse than it does you. My children never said that. I didn't want my children to be able to say that because if it hurt me worse than it hurt them, I didn't do my job right. 
I did not abuse my children. But they will tell you that when we had to resort to that, that it brought pain. We had a, a family, uh, one of the most amazing families I've ever known. Some of you may know Daryl and Renee Yance and moved to Jackson Heights several years ago. I know uh, Brenda will remember them and Carolyn uh, will remember Daryl and Renee. When they came to us, they had five children, five, four, three, two, and one. Uh, I, the comments that I want to make upon that are, made, are a number, but I'm, I'm going to pass over that. But five, four, three, two, and can you imagine that? But if that were not enough, what they did was they went and got two foster children that fell within the ages of those five. She had seven children at one time in her house, all of them under the age of five. Can you imagine? Actually, they were all under the, uh, by the time all of them came, they were all under the age of seven. But there weren't any real small ones either. So they were within that same five-year age, uh, five-year age span. Well, the first Sunday that Daryl came to Jackson Heights, he only had five kids now, but now, at that point in time, we were in the old building, those of you who remember, and the building was absolutely packed, and we had two side rooms, and, and, and they were full. And I remember Daryl and Renee coming in, they were just a little bit late, I wonder why, but they were just a little bit late as, as they came through the door, and the only place they had to sit, where they could sit as a family, is on the second row. And so they marched those children down there. I think Daryl kind of led the way, and the five children came, and they followed up, just kind of like, you know, ducks in a row, and they came, they sat down. And, and I hadn't met them yet. I, you know, I, I just saw them. But I'll tell you something that struck me that very first time. Those children sat there, and they listened better than, than, than any children I'd ever seen to that point in time. I mean, these were small kids, and they were sitting there, and they were looking up at the preacher, listening to what he had to say. Well, being on the front of the second row kind of helped, but, but they were there, and they listened. They weren't looking, turning their heads back and looking at people, and other had people behind them smiling at them and, and, and you know, drawing their attention away. Their faces were to the front or down looking at their Bible. And that struck me in that very first sermon. I asked Daryl sometime later, as I, you know, I wanted to wait before I said anything, and over a period of weeks, I saw that it was the same. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And asked us, Daryl, we've got parents here with one, two children. They can't control them. How do you do it? Well, I knew the answer. Well, I knew one of the answers to that question. Daryl had eyes that should have been registered as lethal weapons. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. They're that way. I mean, you look, and man, you got the point. They got the point. I've seen you look at them. But they knew what backed up those looks, too. Daryl said, Daryl and his answer to me, how do they do this? He says, well, there's only one thing a child understands. What's that, Daryl? And so they behaved. And what a wonderful thing that was. And you know what? Those are some, and still remain today, some of the most loving, devoted children you'll ever, ever meet. They never felt abused. They've never felt abused. And I'll tell you, Daryl didn't have to do that very much. If you discipline right, if you discipline consistently, you typically don't have to discipline much. Then I've heard some people say, well, just let your son sow his wild oats. They'll grow out of it and be okay. And that's the one perhaps that's the saddest because Solomon said in Proverbs 29 verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. 
And what a shameful thing it is when a child brings shame to his mama. You need to discipline your children. Discipline lovingly. Discipline consistently. But discipline them. Then I want to suggest to you that something else your children need is both quantity and quality time to mature. I also grew up in a time in which I began to hear people say, as they began to have more and more busy schedules, well, we may not have a lot of quantity time to give to our kids, but the time that we give to them is quality time, and quality time is so much more important than quantity time. I don't know who said that, but he was an idiot. Because that's not true. Now, true, your children need quality time, but you can't do it microwave fashion. That just don't work. Now, the Bible in no place commands that you must spend X amount of time with your children. But everything that the Bible gives for parents to do is going to demand both quantity and quality time. That's necessarily implied. We live in a fast-paced society with overcrowded schedules. We eat our meals at fast food places and cook in microwaves. But one thing we can't do if we want to have strong marriages and faithful children, and that is we can't shortchange our children. There are no shortcuts to having a good marital relationship. There's none. There are no shortcuts to raising children. Zero. Nada. It's going to take quality and quantity time with them. Steve Lahr, in his book, Point Man, and if, uh, if you've never read that book, you man, I, I would that you would get it. Uh, to the elders, if, if they, they don't have enough money to buy it for themselves, what you need to do is buy a bunch of copies and leave them here and give them to your men. Point Man, Point Man, Steve Farrar. He makes a point in that passage, that, uh, in that book, that, that really is important. He says that the disintegration of the home did not begin with Rosie Riveter, who went into the workplace during World War II and never came out. You see, when preachers that I grew up with, they said, oh, the home began to disintegrate when a woman went into the workplace and never came out. And true, and it must be admitted that that didn't help the home any. It went further down when that happened, but that wasn't when it started. It actually started with the Industrial Revolution. It started when family shops began to close and men got off the family farm and they went into town to work at factories. And they worked eight to ten hours a day and sometimes swing shifts. Because you see, up until the Industrial Revolution, what happened is a child would be under the permanent care of its mother, under the care of its mother completely until it got to be about seven years old. And then young girls stayed in, in the home and under the care of, of the mother. But the young boys, they would go with their fathers either into the field or into the family shop. And they learned not only the trade or the livelihood of their father, they also learned character from their father. Because they spent hours and hours and hours with the father. Now, that don't happen. It don't happen. Because many people not only are gone from home, many men not only gone from home eight hours, ten hours a day with, with their kids, sometimes they're working six days a week and sometimes they travel and don't get even come home at night. And mothers, listen carefully. God commands you, Titus chapter 2 and verse 5, to love your husbands, to love your children, and to be workers at home. 
God commands it. Now, I do not believe it's a sin for the woman to work outside the home. I, I don't want you to mistake that. But I don't want you to mistake this either. You are to be a keeper of that home. And if you are not a keeper of that home, you're not doing what God commands you to do. It's your responsibility. And I don't know how to turn the, the rush of society around and get it to where men can stay home more and, and women will, will, will stay home more and be stay-at-home moms. I don't know how to turn that around. But I know this. It's going to take quality and quantity time to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And if we fail our families, we've just about failed everything. We've just about failed everything. I know I'm going to take just a little bit over time tonight. I want to beg your indulgence because I want to say some other things about this. I've raised three kids. Mine are almost gone from home. And, and so I've got a lot on my heart. And I just hope you'll just bear with me. One of the things that's taking place today, and one of the things that's hurting families, is that you have children that, in another way of driving being the driving force behind your families that's demanding to play every sport in the book. And what's happening is, is mother and father, if you have two or three children, every night of the week are ferrying children from one place to another. And you are taking your children, getting them involved in something that's not necessarily Wrong in and of itself. Please understand, I don't think there's a thing wrong with baseball, basketball, football, soccer. I don't think there's a thing wrong with all that. Inherently. But what happens is you start bouncing back and forth between all of them, and, and it's not long before you miss the fact that in all of that, you haven't been with your children. Other people have influenced your children, not you. Don't do that. I'm not saying that your children can't ever play team sports. I'm saying that they don't need to play all of them. What you need to do is make sure that you have control of your children, that you're educating your children, that, that you are recreating your children, and that you are spending quality and quality time with your kids. And don't give them to somebody else. Don't do that. If you do, you're going to bring a lot of grief to yourself and not only that, but you may suffer the vengeful wrath of God when your children do not have the same kind of faith that you have. Church just can't be a pit stop on Sunday morning like soccer is on Monday afternoon. It's got to be something different and something more pervasive. Finally, I want to suggest to you, you've got to give your children a hope to live for. We've got to teach our children eternal perspective. Some of us have got to get it ourselves. But all of us need to teach our children an eternal perspective. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed a man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Rosa, it wasn't Rosa Parks, excuse me. That name is in my mind because of the, uh, her death this last week. Uh, Miss Jane Pittman lived to be well over 100 years old. I think 109, 110, something like that. I can't remember exactly the number. But what she was asked one time, what is 
the worst thing about growing to that age. She says, well, I've grown to the age where I've outlived all my children. That would be sad. That, that would be sad. As beautiful as the day is that your children are born, it must be a terrible thing to have to suffer the death of a child. We've got to place within our children and teach them even in the formative years that one of these days we're going to have to die and meet God. We can't teach our children the value of fighting the good fight of faith without keeping before them the rewards of a faithful life lived. Because this hope will purify them in obedience. It will motivate them to the service we've been talking about. It will sustain them in the difficult times of their lives. And it will anchor them to Jesus if we give them that hope to live by. I want to close my lesson tonight by simply saying this. Every parent should see the responsibility of directing their children toward heaven as the most challenging issue of their lives. I've always felt that if I failed as a father to my children, I will have failed in the greatest undertaking that God has ever given me. So I want to do my best to be a good father. My feelings were well worded by Arthur Clifton Rogers when he said this. I may never be as clever as my neighbor down the street. I may never be as wealthy as some other men I meet. I may never have the glory that some other men have had. But I've got to be successful as a little fellow's dad. There are certain dreams I cherish that I'd like to see come true. There are things I would accomplish ere my working time is through. But the task my heart is set on is to guide a little lad and to make myself successful as a little fellow's dad. I may never come to glory. I may never gather gold. Men may count me as a failure when my business life is told. But if he who follows after shall be manly, I'll be glad, for I know I've been successful as a little fellow's dad. It's the one job I dream of. It's the task I think of most. If I'd fail that growing youngster, I'd have nothing else to boast. For through wealth and fame I'd gather, all my future would be sad if I fail to be successful as that little fellow's dad. In the books that you're reading, I was moved beyond my ability to be able to tell you of the story about the magic fish. If you weren't already reading it, I would read it to you now at this point. In fact, when I preached this lesson a couple of weeks from now at... Uh, Case in Lane, I'm going to read that story. But what I want to tell you is that raising kids is a trip. It's a trip. But what you need to do is enjoy the journey. God bless you. I hope this lesson from Brother Jim Deason and our fall focus on the family built by the Lord has been beneficial to you and helps you build that relationship between you and your children. If we want to build the bond between parents and children, we as parents need to provide them with, one, a dependable authority to respect, two, an infallible law to live by, 
Three, unconditional love to live with. Four, a faithful example to follow. Five, consistent discipline to correct. Six, quantity and quality time to mature. Seven, a hope to live for. I hope this lesson has been beneficial to you. And if you haven't already done so, please go to our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have several other lessons on the family in our 2005 Fall Focus on the Family that you're free to download, both in outline and audio format. And I hope these are beneficial to you. If you have any questions about the family, about parenting, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please give us a call, 615-794-2359. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him, but more importantly, may you richly bless God.